Listeners, this is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Velo News Magazine, coming at you with another Velo News tech podcast where we talk about geeky stuff about bikes, and I ask smart people questions. In that light, uh, today we have a smart person on the, on the phone, uh, and he's here to talk to us about aerodynamics. Now, we all kind of understand why it's important to have an aerodynamic bike. It makes you go faster, right? Well, let's dive into... First of all, how how do these bike manufacturers design you know these bikes that are supposedly aerodynamic? Uh, there's a lot of a lot of steps involved in creating tube shapes that actually make sense for the bicycle. A big component of that testing is wind tunnel testing, and we've all heard of it. We've all heard the term wind tunnel testing, tested and testing, and and we took it to the wind tunnel and we saved this many watts. Well. It got me to thinking, you know, what actually happens in a wind tunnel when you send a bike there? I mean, what is a wind tunnel? I mean, we we all kind of have a vague concept of it, but let's talk specifics. So to get at the specifics of what actually happens in a wind tunnel and sort of how the process of wind tunnel testing has changed in the last several years, especially as it relates to the bicycle design world, I have on the line Jeff Eaker, who is the uh, owner and operator did I get that right? Manager and operator. Sorry. <laughs> it's, uh, I, boy, there we talked go. about we talked about titles and I screwed it up immediately. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> manager and operator at A2 Wind Tunnels. And uh, full disclosure, Velo News has used A2 Wind Tunnels for some of our testing in the past. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's 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 dive right in. Uh, you spend your days at a wind tunnel uh, testing all all sorts of things that not just bikes, correct? You test you test other vehicles and other things as well, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, people would are often surprised. They ask me, what's the weirdest thing I have in here? And um, there have been several garbage can manufacturers. Um, I have guys who've designed new wingsuits uh, for skydiving. Um, you know, obviously, a large part of our business is like race cars and motorcycles. Um, some people are even surprised to hear that because in the bike world, they're thinking, you know, this is a bicycle wind tunnel. Right. Um, yeah. We really didn't design it for that. Originally, we uh, designed it for cars and motorcycles and things of that nature. No kidding. So there's actually aerodynamically designed garbage cans. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in my my mental bank for use in a review coming up. Yeah, I might as well elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, so because people's eyes always get big and they're what the heck what for? So yeah. the reason that happens is you know with these automated garbage trucks these days is the garbage cans are provided by the city. So in order to uh, get a government contract, these manufacturers they have to tick all these boxes and. Uh, one of the boxes is that your garbage can isn't going to blow over in a 20 mile an hour breeze and spill trash everywhere. Wow. So they got to come in and verify that before they can get a government contract and sell the city 10 million garbage cans. Wow. All right. So you heard it here first, arrow garbage cans. I wouldn't recommend rolling one down the <laughs> hill on it, but you know, you can try it if you want. All right, Jeff, let's, let's dive right in. Um, you know, we, we all kind of have a vague understanding of what, what's in a wind tunnel. Big fan big room, you put the bike in there. But can you actually describe in more detail, what does the physical structure look like? What is it? What is a wind tunnel uh, and how does it work? Sure. So there's uh, various different kinds of wind tunnels, different setups. Um, probably the most frequently used is, is basically a big tube that's kind of in a donut shape. So 
That's known as a closed return wind tunnel. So you're in the test section with your bike and the tube goes behind you and it takes a curve and it takes another curve, takes another curve, comes back around and you get hit by the same air over and over. Um, obviously somewhere in that, uh, series, there's some fans. Um, ours is actually called an open return wind tunnel. So if you imagine we've got this big warehouse and we've basically just got an open ended tube in the warehouse. So you're in the test section. The fans are actually pulling the air past you. They're not blowing it, um, up to you. And then the air kicks out the back of the tube and it's allowed to freely recirculate throughout the warehouse. And then it gets pulled right back in the front of the tube. Mm -hmm. So we are recirculating the air, but we're not doing it in kind of a, a donut shaped tube. It's just a, just a segment of a tube. Uh -huh. So you guys are not a donut wind tunnel. You're a cannoli wind tunnel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. This is why they pay me the big bucks, Jeff. All right. So now we, we, we yeah. kind of understand what uh, the physical structure looked like. Now, this air that's being blown at the bike, I mean, clearly the, the goal here is to find out how the air is flowing over the bicycle. And that is a matter of fluid dynamics. Now, can you please just as briefly and quickly and, and <laughs> succinctly as possible so we don't lose people in this, can you explain what fluid dynamics is and how it relates to what you do in the wind tunnel. Sure. So fluid dynamics is basically just, uh, just what it sounds like. It's the study of fluids uh, moving, how they interact with an environment. Um, gas is actually considered a fluid. A lot of people just think of fluid as a liquid. Um, a fluid technically is any uh, material that takes the shape of its container, basically. So gas is included in that. So there are many uh, subfields of study in fluid dynamics, and one is aerodynamics. There's hydrodynamics. There's several others. But uh, obviously, we'll focus on aerodynamics. So in aerodynamics, you're going to be studying um, how the air interacts with an object or even sometimes just how it interacts with itself, like as it's moving through the inside, of, or it would still be in an object. So yeah, how, how it interacts with an object and you're going to be evaluating the forces it exerts on the object or even the, uh, the pressure fields that are uh, interacting with the object. Um, and so in some cases in the wind tunnel, we are actually evaluating, uh, like with bicycles and cars, we're evaluating things that move through the air. But then with things like garbage cans, um, solar panels, satellite dishes, things of that nature, we're evaluating something that's stationary, that's getting air blown at it. Mm -hmm. um, so in those cases, we've got a bunch of sensors in the wind tunnel, and we're able to measure the forces in all axes. So not just the drag forces, but the side forces and the front and rear down force, mm -hmm. um, the yaw forces. So in every axis, because we really need to capture all of that, you know, wind does weird things it moves in all different directions so if you don't capture any given piece of that you're not getting the whole picture you're missing out on some of the forces and uh you can make some bad decisions that right, way right i'm good at making bad decisions especially on bicycles um so let me let me ask you this now when when you you blow air at this at this bicycle and we'll we'll talk specifically bicycle now because you know i i imagine and correct me if i'm wrong but i imagine the testing process for a motorcycle or a car will differ 
than the testing protocols and the testing, uh, you know, process of, of testing a bicycle. Is that correct? Yeah, to some degree, but also, um, it really is kind of straightforward. Uh, like as far as the setup process goes, you know, we, we do what we need to do to get the vehicle into the tunnel, uh, for bicycles. That means that we swap out the, uh, axles just for some axles that, uh, have adapters on them that make it so that we can mount it into the tunnel, uh, cars and motorcycles, you know, we basically just roll them in and strap them down onto our equipment. Um, it's a fairly easy setup process for anything that's anything standard. Um, (laughs) we have had some unusual items like wheelchairs and things like that, that we would have to, uh, make up some new fixtures for, but, um, Then as far as the actual testing process is concerned, it's really the same thing no matter what you have out there. you Once you get it installed, you blow some air at it or suck some air at it. You uh, take some data, you go out there, you make change, and you do it all over again. And you do that as many times as necessary to get all of the data you need to either find out how to reduce drag on it or uh, a lot of times in cars – they're actually increasing the drag because they're looking for downforce. Uh-huh. Um, and in most cases, when you want downforce, you've got to increase the drag. So, uh, yeah, that's basically the process. Okay. It's just change, test, repeat. Yeah, yeah. So uh, two of the terms that uh, we cyclists often hear in, in marketing for, for bicycles, especially as it pertains to aero bicycles, there's two terms we often hear. And the first is yaw. And the other is grams of drag. Can you explain these two terms and and why those are important when we're talking about the aerodynamic performance of a bicycle? Sure. So yaw um, is, if you think about it like an airplane, that's probably where a lot of people hear the word yaw before they ever hear it about bicycles. Um, It's as if you're just turning in a horizontal plane. Um, There's no vertical component to it. So in airplanes or cars, turning yaw, in bicycles, in the wind tunnel, when we're referring to yaw, we're talking about turning the bike, but we're doing it for a different reason. Um, So when you turn the bike in the wind tunnel, it's not to evaluate how the bike might turn out in the real world. What you're actually doing is in the real world, let's say you're moving forward at 30 miles an hour. At any given time, you could get a gust of like 20 miles an hour hitting you in the side, well, then that's going to give you a resultant vector. Basically, the the air is acting like it's hitting the bike from an angle because you've got this 30 mile an hour forward and a 20 mile an hour sideways. So then you've got some resultant yaw vector. Um, so that's why we have to test the bicycles at yaw in the wind tunnel since any kind of cross breeze is going to make the wind think that it's really hitting or the wind really will be hitting you from an angle. Um, so that's, that's a really important factor in bicycles as compared to cars or motorcycles or something else because of the low uh, traveling speed in relation to a wind speed. If you're going 150 miles in a race car, a 20 mile an hour side breeze is going to have little to no effect. Whereas if you're going 30 miles an hour on a bicycle, well, let's say 20 miles an hour, because that's probably closer to what, you know, the average rider would do. And you get a 20 mile an hour cross breeze. 
it's going to be like you're riding your bike or the wind is blowing at you from 45 degrees, which is really, really uncommon. But just to make the numbers nice and easy, 20 miles an hour forward, 20 mile an hour side breeze, 45 degrees. Yeah. So what's the other, the other measurement that I mentioned, grams of drag, what, what are you measuring and, and how is that, how is that measured? Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, we've got, uh, a lot of equipment that we're able to measure the forces at all in all axes. Um, so when we're measuring, technically we're not even measuring in grams of drag, the system outputs the forces just as a voltage, and then we convert that voltage into whatever we need. We've got a calibration factor. So we can see it at grams, but more often than not, we end up looking at the wattage because that is what riders are more familiar with. Um, there's a lot of riders out there that if you just throw a gram number at them, hey, we reduced your drag by 20 grams. Well, what's that mean to me? So we uh, calculate the wattage saved and um, that wattage number is going to change depending on the wind speed because the faster you try and go, the more wattage it takes to overcome the wind. So we take the rider's average speed and we punch that in and that will calculate how much each of these changes is worth in watts. So we can tell you if you put on a different helmet and it's generating five watts less drag, I mean, that's really easy to wrap your head around. You know how many watts it takes you to ride down the street. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in the, in the manufacturer's world, they do like to evaluate grams more often. But uh, in the athlete world, we like to look more at wattage. Mm-hmm. So the big, the big takeaways here from what I'm hearing is uh, when we're measuring wind, uh, it would be very simplistic and probably inaccurate to simply measure wind from the front. And so that is why we test yaw angles because that more accurately uh, gives us a sense of how the bike will handle in crosswinds or, you know, uh, other, other conditions you'll, you'll, you'll come across outside. Um, not necessarily how it will react when you're physically turning the bike. Uh, is that, does that sound correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a hundred percent. If you think about it, um, zero degrees yaw very rarely happens. You have to be indoors, basically. Um, you know, how often are you riding along and there's no wind from any direction? There's always going to be some kind of resultant vector. So, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're if you're only measuring your drag at zero, then you're getting too small a piece of the picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as far as grams of drag goes. Um, you know, the wattage saved, like you said, is, is probably something we all more understand because, you know, especially since, uh, power meters have sort of become ubiquitous on, on all race bikes. Uh, that, that's sort of a measurement we all understand, but, uh, grams of drag essentially is, is a measurement that, uh, that gives you a sense of, of how, how much resistance that bike is putting up when the wind hits it. Yeah. Um, basically the wind hits the bike and how hard is that wind pushing on the bike? Mm -hmm. That's, that's basically what grams of drag is. Um, and obviously knowing how much, uh, how much force the wind is having to exert doesn't tell you a whole lot. So you have to flip that perspective on its head to say, how much force does the bike have to exert to make it through the wind? Right. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Now I assume that when when a bike company comes to you and says we want to test our bike, 
uh, it's not simply a matter of just strapping it in and hitting the switch. I mean, do you do you go through a process with, or maybe not as maybe not a brand? I mean, say Velo News, right? We send you a bike and we say um, test this. Uh, I assume you would say test it for what? Right, like there's there's testing protocols. Yeah. What's the process look like of, of getting a bike set up? And I mean, you told us physically what it is is you just strap it in and uh, you know secure it. But what's the process in terms of um, determining what you're testing, how you're testing it, and and ensuring that the the data you're going to get from the test is actually meaningful, uh, not just some you know. Well, we know that it's at zero grams of drag. We know it's perfect. You know. Right. Yeah. So um, in the wind tunnel, there are literally infinite variables you can test. Um, every test could be different. Even if I've got a, a wheel, two different wheel manufacturers coming in the same day, um, they might have different test protocols. So it really comes down to uh, the company's needs. Um, but you always have to have something to compare to. If you just, if you were the first person that ever wind tunnel tested and you go in the wind tunnel and you've got this number that comes out, what's that even mean? I, you know, you're generating 2000 grams of drag. Okay. Well, is that good? Is that bad? Is, I don't know. So really every time somebody comes into the wind tunnel, they're going to have some kind of reference. You're always going to test more than one thing. You got to compare it to something. Right. So in, uh, in bike manufacturer world, a lot of times if they're coming in, whether it's with a frame or a wheel, they're either going to have a competitor or they're going to have one of their previous models to compare against. And you want to see, you put one in and you get the numbers and you put the next one in, you get the numbers, and then you're able to evaluate which is better. Um, you can make small changes. And so you can figure out why is this model better than the other model? Oftentimes when manufacturers come in, they've already done a lot of that design work previously. They don't want to come into the wind tunnel just crossing their fingers and hoping that it's better. So um, they use different tools like CFD and, and uh, things like that, or even sometimes scale models before they come with their full size prototype to evaluate it. But yeah, as far as the, the protocol is concerned, coming into the wind tunnel, it can be a little bit different for everybody. Sure. You mentioned CFD and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, and just for the listeners, uh, CFD stands for uh, computational fluid dynamics. And, and that is, that has really hit its stride in the last several years in the bike industry. And we're going to talk about how that influences uh, wind tunnel testing in just a moment. But Jeff, I got a question for you. So the more you talk about testing in the wind tunnel, the more I'm getting the sense that it's not accurate to say this is the fastest bike or this one is the second fastest bike. It's almost as though in yeah. order to make those sorts of claims, you would have to test every single yaw angle, every single situation, and you'd have to do it the same across all of the bikes to really get a sense of which one is the fastest bike uh, in all conditions. Is that right? For sure. And I mean, there's, there's a million more variables than that. You'd have to test every size of athlete you'd have to test every size of the bike you'd have to test every water bottle setup i mean you could you know you could have the exact same two bikes and one is faster bike a is faster than bike b and then you put the same water bottle setup on both bikes and all of a sudden now bike b is better than bike a um there's there's just infinite variables and really if you want to 
figure out in the grand scheme of things, which bike is better, man, you better buckle up for a long ride because you're <laughs> going to be in the wind tunnel for about a year. Oh, geez. <laughs> that sounds vastly unpleasant uh, as somebody who doesn't even like riding a train. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess one of the things that we've also seen crop up, which is related to this, uh, is in recent years, some, some uh, bike manufacturers have sort of made it uh, – one of their talking points that, yeah, sure, this other competitor's bike may be faster in the wind tunnel, but throw a bike, uh, throw a rider on there, and ours is faster. Um, yeah. When you uh, when you test bikes in the wind tunnel, what is your recommendation? I mean, do you do you think it makes more sense to test a bike on its own to get a sense of what the tube shapes are doing, or does it make more sense to test with a rider? on the bike to see how the airflow changes, the fluid dynamics change as the rider uh, is on the bike and moves on the bike. Yeah. So therein lies the problem. That's, that's the struggle everybody's wrestling with. Um, do you do rider on or not? The big advantage to not having a rider on is a, as I said, you know, different people have different shape bodies that's going to interact with the bike differently. So if you have, a small guy in there on the bike, it's going to be different. If you have a guy that's six, five in there on a bike, it's just, it's not going to be the same. Um, the more important factor than that is when you introduce a cyclist onto the bicycle, you've got that cyclist is a moving target. All of your data is going to be uh, a little bit skewed by how the cyclist moves when he's in there. His, the shape of his body is changing as we're recording data. Um, and some athletes are a lot better at being consistent and getting those repeatable numbers than other athletes move around. And then you don't know if the, if the athletes moving around too much, you can put them on any bike and you'll never figure out which bike is better because the data is just constantly changing. Mm -hmm. It's, you're trying to hit a moving target and you don't know what's going on. Right. Whereas when you've got the bicycle in there alone, you take out that huge factor, that huge question mark, and you're able to much more precisely dial in which bike is better for what reason. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's you're definitely going to get a better simulation with the athlete on the bike because there are interactions that take place that if there's not an athlete on the bike, yeah, you could you could have something, you could have a bike in there made of cardboard and it looks great but nobody can sit on that. It's not going to be strong enough. I mean, you, you could soak it in epoxy resin or something, but I, I think you get my point is yeah, um, yeah. you can have a paper thin bike in there that looks great in the wind tunnel, but that's not reality. Somebody has got to sit on that bike and it's got to, that's going to change all the aerodynamics. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's a, that's a pretty much a great summary of why, you know, we'll see uh, a big, a big brand come out with a brand new aero bike and say, it's the fastest, the fastest, the fastest. And yet we'll also see uh, the professional athletes take that bike to the wind tunnel to once again, test it with them on it. Because once you add the rider, the vehicle itself has changed. The rider becomes part of that vehicle. So a bike yep. that's fastest for me, you know, with my, my Honda civic engine and, you know, uh, on the couch body is not going to be the same as, you know, if you throw Peter Sagan on it, you know, with his Ferrari, you know, engine and you know, somewhat in shape svelte body. So the, the, where you're, you're essentially changing the machine, right? The bike becomes the bike and yeah. rider. So it's a totally different test. 
Yeah. An analogy that I give people is, you know, there's going to be interactions between all the parts. It's like if you take a pocket watch and uh, you take out one gear, is it going to work? No, they, they all those pieces have an interaction. It's not going to work the same without one of those pieces as it does with all the pieces put together. There's in the aero world, you can't take one component out and say, okay, this one component costs us this much drag. That's how we know when we put it on, we know that's how much drag it costs us. No, no, no. When you put it on now, it's part of a bigger, uh, bigger machine. And you've got all these interactions going on. Everything just changed. Mm-hmm. And that brings up another point. Now, what if you say you find a bike that's that's uh, quote unquote fast, you know, in the wind tunnel, and then you add real life conditions, like say you put another bike in front of it because in races you draft. Uh, I mean, is it possible for a bike that performs well on its own to perform poorly in a draft? Yeah, for sure. Um, we haven't really done that many tests in drafting. Some people do. Uh, but again, there, you know, if you, if you think it's hard to dial in with one athlete on a bike, well, now you've got two athletes on two bikes and you've doubled, it was already infinite variables before. Now you've doubled those infinite variables and you've got to try and track that down. Um, you know, right next door, we've got another wind tunnel that focuses on NASCAR. And obviously in, in NASCAR, you've got these big blocks moving through the air. Drafting is something they talk about all the time too. It's very rare uh, unless you're at the front of the pack that you're ever not going to be dealing with drafting. And so they've. it's more important for them to be testing drafting situations, but there's just too many variables. You would have to test the car in front of it in every position, side, you know, right to left, front to back, um, all different spacings to really figure out that whole picture and you just don't have time to do all that. So you've got to pare it down and you've got to try and figure out what's the most efficient way to get the best data I can in a reasonable amount of time. Mm -hmm. You know, that as a, as a guy who, you know, not too long ago was, was agonizing over what bike to buy and, and, you know, I want to get the fastest one. How do, how do consumers interpret this data that all these bike companies are, are, are presenting now where they're saying our bike is, this fast over 40 kilometers and you know uh, clearly it's better than everything else on the market as a consumer i mean is that all bs i mean can can i really from my couch researching bikes determine which is the fastest bike for me yeah that's a that's a tough one um you you gotta go with whatever data you can find uh and yeah the more data you can find the better um and that's pretty much the answer so if anything, what I would do if I were a consumer, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the wind tunnel world. I kind of have the inside track of, of what I, how I would make a decision. Um, I would get, if, if I was choosing between two or three bikes, I'd get those two or three bright bikes and I'd bring them into the wind tunnel and I'd try my position on all three of them. And I know that sounds like a, a pretty lofty idea. Um, those bikes are pretty expensive. But, um, that, that's the only way to know for sure. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you'd have to just go through, you find whatever data you can. Um, you know, if you've got uh, source a, you know, if you've got the manufacturer putting out certain numbers and then Velo news is here and they give you a different set of numbers. And then you find some Joe Bob down the street, went into the wind tunnel and he's got another set of numbers, compile all those, get an average 
And that's, that's really the best way. If you can't bring multiple bikes in the wind tunnel, get as much data as you can average it out. I always go with Joe Bob's information. He always seems to be the most reliable. Yeah. I, you got to be pretty careful about that. Unfortunately, <laughs> there's a lot of people out there that, uh, that think wind tunnel testing is as simple as just blowing some air at, uh, at a bike and seeing how much drag it generates. And as I mentioned earlier, um, first of all, you've got to measure all the forces in every axis. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you have to make sure that the air is a high quality air. Um, I also briefly mentioned we are sucking the air through the wind tunnel, not blowing. If you ever see a wind tunnel that's blowing the air at you, if the fan's in front of you, turn around. <laughs> Don't test there, get uh. your money and go. <laughs> um, as, as air comes off of a fan blade, it's generating a lot of turbulence. That air is moving around a lot. You're not getting a smooth flow, so you're never going to get those repeatable numbers. You'll get in the window in the tunnel one time, and you'll see your you've got 200 watts of drag, and then you get in the tunnel the next time, exact same position, and all of a sudden now there's 230 watts of drag. Well, which one do you believe? Mm. There's no way of knowing. Mm. So you always want to pull that air through the wind tunnel. Mm -hmm. Very important. Interesting. That is definitely something that uh, I think there's a common misconception. I mean, I, I didn't even know that. I mean, I didn't know that you, it's better to suck the air than to blow it. I mean, I think that's, that's pretty interesting because when you think of fluid dynamics and you think of all these aerodynamic uh, claims that, that uh, bike manufacturers make, you always see the flow go front to back. That doesn't necessarily mean that the air is, is being created at the front. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I think most people just intuitively, uh, you know, we're, we're used to looking at fans our whole lives and what doesn't 99% of any fan you ever see is blowing. So you just assume right. that <laughs> in a wind tunnel, the fan's going to blow, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so as a consumer again, and I'm, you know, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to just wrap my head around how to make sense of this from a practical standpoint, if I'm going to buy a bike as a consumer, are there any, are there aer any, any aerodynamic rules of thumb? You know, like I could go to a, a bike shop and see two different aero bikes and say, Oh, well this one has this. So that's, that's best practice. You know, is there anything like that in, mm. in this, in this scenario? Man, it's tough. Um, especially in the bike world, uh, in, in cars, you've got one big solid object, um, that is, that's somewhat of a streamlined body, you know, all the air as it moves over that car, that car, it's going to do something fairly predictable. Whereas in the bike world, you've got all these different pieces that are exposed to the air. So, um, as air transitions off of one piece to another, you get some degree of turbulence, you get different things going on. You've got really complicated interactions. So it's really hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, the best rules of thumb that I can give is for one, you always want to uh, minimize the stuff hanging off your bike. And a lot of times that's, um, you know, cables and things that, that are just kind of hanging out where there's no reason for them to be hanging out. Now, things like a water bottle or, you know, something for your uh, nutrition, um, different things like that. Obviously it's gotta be somewhere. So you, you know, you put it somewhere where it's kind of hidden from a front view and um, that's something you can test in the wind tunnel. Where's the best location to put those things. But as far as if you're just walking into a bike shop and trying to figure it out by eye, get down, look at the front view and, uh, 
whatever has the least junk hanging off, whatever has the smallest profile from the front is possibly your best bet. If you're comparing, you know, buying a Joe Bob's used aero bike to a shop's aero bike. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but aero bikes, they're all, they're all so close and so good anyways. It's, it's, you're not going to be able to pick up on that very well with your eye unless it's low hanging fruit like that, where it's cables and different things that are just dangling in the wind. Mm -hmm. As a, as a technical editor for a bicycle publication, I, I often say, and, and, and I'm not the only one there's, you know, everybody, uh, just about everybody in the, in the bike industry will tell you this. Uh, I often tell people that round tube shapes are generally bad, uh, for aerodynamic flow. Mm. Um, is that true across the board? I mean, is that, is, can we consider that a rule of thumb? Like if there's lots of round tube shapes, that's going to be slower than an aerodynamic tube, you know, like a, a truncated airfoil or something like that. Sure. I mean, um, you know, we were just talking about aero bikes. Uh, when was the last time you saw an aero bike with a round tube on it? They just, it doesn't happen. Right, right. <laughs> um, they're all, they're all airfoil sections. And there's actually a couple reasons they would do that. Like the, the top tube on the bike, there's, they could use a round tube there if they wanted to. Um, there's aerodynamically, there's not that much of a benefit to use a foil shape, except structurally, you can make it thinner. Um, if it's taller, you get some more stiffness out of it rather than it just being a round tube. And obviously marketing, it looks cooler. <laughs> so... But yeah, for, for a general rule of thumb, foil shapes are definitely better than a round tube shape. Okay. So I was, I was actually right about something. I'd like that uh, noted in the record, the official record here. Um, it happens so rarely if you believe the Facebook comments. Um, let, <laughs> let's move on to uh, um, CFD. We, we talked about CFD a little earlier in the show. And uh, I, I mentioned to our, our, re, our listeners that it's, it stands for computational fluid dynamics, which means a whole lot of nothing to most of us. So talk to me, yeah. uh, first of all, give me a, a quick rundown of what CFD is and how it's being used in the bike industry and, and, and how it's changed wind tunnel testing. So uh, CFD, computational fluid dynamics, you basically, the gist of it is you get a CAD model, um, a 3D model of whatever you want to test, you put it into this simulation software called CFD. You tell it which direction the wind's coming from, what temperature the wind is, what the ambient pressure is outside, all these different variables that factor into the wind itself. And you push go and you wait hmm, 24 hours, more, less, depends on the complexity of the uh, model. And it spits out some numbers for you. It tells you, uh, and it can spit out a whole lot of numbers, or you can pare it down if you just want to know, you know, the drag on an object. It's a pretty simple number. Um, so that is a very useful way to um, evaluate the arrow forces on an object um, while you're designing it without having to go to a wind tunnel with a lot of different models and test every little variation. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, on average, probably a model of something like a bicycle for a quick and dirty test might take you 24 hours, depends on the processing speed of the computer and what have you. Um, but it's, it's a timely process mm -hmm. just for one model. 
and then you want to make a change, you tweak that model and you run it through the software again. And it is trying to calculate where basically every molecule of air is going and what it's doing. So that's why that simulation takes so long. Uh-huh. So um, the way that CFD then plays with wind tunnel testing is manufacturers are able to uh, save some of that logistics money and some of that modeling money by just making that computer model. They can send it off to Bob CFD company. They can have an answer the next day, whether that was good or bad. Uh, You do that enough times, you get to a point where you can make a prototype. Then the prototype goes off to the wind tunnel. Uh, The reason you do that is those CFD models are super complicated. As I said, it could take 24 hours or more to run one model because the computer is trying to calculate where each one of these molecules is going. And it's not always going to get it right. 80, 90% of the time, um, you're going to get the right answer. Then you've got the rest of the time. And even if it gives you the right answer, uh, is it close enough to real world? The only way to know is to make your physical prototype, take it to the wind tunnel, and verify those numbers. So CFD is sort of like a pretest for the test. Yeah. Yeah. Now, are you seeing more more companies use uh, 3D printing to to do a mock-up, or or are they still doing uh, actual models that go into the uh, the wind tunnel based off CFD uh, in the materials that will be used to actually make the frame in the end in the manufacturing process? Uh, definitely, as the years go by, you see more and more 3D printing, and you know that's for multiple reasons. For one. The um, CFD is getting more popular. The 3D printing, even though it's been around for years now, it's still gaining steam in, uh, in everybody's lives, I think. Yeah. So, uh, and those models are getting, the, the 3D printers are getting more accurate and cheaper. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely picking up. So is there is we're we're coming up on the forty minute mark and we've been talking a lot about uh, you know how how things work in the wind tunnel and and how that matters for uh, consumers looking to buy an aero bike or really any bike uh, especially ones that are making any sort of aerodynamic claims is there anything about this discussion that we're forgetting I mean is there something that we haven't talked about that consumers need to know uh, before they go out and and buy their next aero bike mm. or have we nailed it. Man, as far as going out and buying an aero bike, like I said, I, I told you what I would do, what my strategy would be is I would figure out a way if I had to get them on loan, if I had to buy them and return them, I would figure out a way to get multiple aero bikes, set them up for me, bring them into the wind tunnel. Um, that I would make it happen. It sounds complicated. I would make that happen for sure. If I'm making that big of an investment in uh, a new product and I'm hoping that it's going to save me a few watts here or there, um, otherwise, you're, that, otherwise you're just basically, you're trusting the data that the manufacturers are presenting to you. Yeah. And it's not even just a matter of trusting the data. It's, they have no way of, um, uh, of testing or giving you the data on how that bike is going to respond to you as a unique shaped, uh, piece of the machine. Mm-hmm. There, there's no way they can give you that piece of information. Right. So the only way to know how your body is interacting with that bike is to have multiple bikes in the wind tunnel. Other than that, like I said, you, you get as much data as you can and you average it all together and hope that you're averaging good data together. Right, right. <laughs> fortunately, I think, and I think this is pretty important to note for our listeners, you know, fortunately, most of the, actually, let's say all of the reputable brands that you will probably consider for your next aero bike are, are employing 
pretty solid, uh, you know, best practices in terms of designing, uh, um, aero bikes. I mean, everybody's using airfoil shapes. Like you said, uh, everybody is aware that round tube shapes are not ideal and everybody's sort of trying to find those extra little grams by moving water bottles here and there and adding fairings here and there. So the chances of you buying a truly bad, badly performing aero bike are pretty slim. All right. So we've, we've covered all the topics about aero performance and really what it comes down to is aero performance as presented to you in, in marketing speak is only going to tell you one, uh, one piece of the puzzle of what bike should be your next bike. You're going to have to factor in your riding position, your riding style, uh, how much comfort you want incorporated into the design of your next aero bike. Uh, you know, and, and really ultimately let's be honest, your price point. So, while while those aerodynamic claims are inter interesting and probably tell you a lot about what went into developing that bike, it may not be the 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 main decider of what bike you should get next. Does that sound about right to you, Jeff? Right. All right. Yeah, Jeff. that sounds right. And I mean, it it is important that uh, the companies are putting out those kind of data. You know, it's uh, spurring competition, and that's leading people further and further ahead. While from year to year, you see only a handful of watts difference from bike to bike. If you compare a bike from this year to a bike from 10 years ago, you're going to see a huge gap. So as long as those competitors are keeping everything close, you, good to go. You win as a, as a consumer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that doesn't even go into things like, uh, you know, changing your helmet or your, your jersey. I mean, those can also have big effects on, on aerodynamic performance and probably at a much lower price point. So, you know, if you're really if you're really thinking of spending the big bucks, you get the aero bike and that's sort of the bulk of of your aerodynamic aerodynamic performance and then from there you can you can really make yourself faster and save a few watts by changing your helmet or changing the way you hold your shoulders in the drops, you know, things like that. There's way more ways to make yourself faster. And you could find that out by going to A2 wind tunnels and doing a test if you wanted to. Uh wouldn't be cheap. Exactly. Uh, but it is probably the best way to do it. But otherwise, uh, you know, if you're a consumer, think carefully about maybe going for a, a fit a fit session and that'll, that'll get you in the best position to, uh, you know, get the most power out of your pedal stroke and, and find out if your if your body position is aerodynamic. So there's lots of ways you can go about shaving those Watts. It doesn't always just come down to the bike. And, you know, you mentioned it may not be cheap. Uh, I have to I have to do a, a shameless plug here real quick and actually give you some uh, information on the uh, on the value of coming to the wind tunnel is um, it's really about four ninety five an hour is the starting price so when you look at it that way you know you're investing five to ten grand on a new aero bike that might save you a couple watts coming to the wind tunnel on average we we can see around a ten percent savings in wattage. From somebody's total wattage, they can do about a 10% reduction by coming in and figuring out what's their best kit to wear, what's their best helmet, what's their best position. Mm -hmm. um, so when you compare spending $500 to $1,000 to come to the wind tunnel versus spending $5,000 to $10,000 on a bike, I'd say it's actually a pretty valuable investment to come to the wind tunnel and get yourself fitted. There you go. I mean, that's, that, that always comes back to every, everyone's favorite term Watts per dollars. And you know, that's always a, a personal decision to make, but really, I mean, 500 to a thousand dollars for somebody who's looking to shave, 
you know, as many watts as, or as many grams of drag as possible and, and really up their, their wattage that, that may make a lot of sense. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, Jeff, thank you for, for joining us today. That was really, it's pretty fascinating, uh, to actually understand what happens in a wind tunnel. And, and I think the next step for any of you guys listening, man, if there's a wind tunnel near you, just go check it out, go see it in action. I'm sure there's, there's ways you can do that. I think it's, it's a pretty fascinating thing to watch and the data that you get from it is, is equally fascinating. I mean, we could talk about this all day. Um, but Jeff, thanks for sharing your expertise today. Really appreciate you joining me. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And for any of you all listening, if you have questions about this podcast or any other tech podcast that we've done, please do tweet at Brown Tie Dan or comment on Facebook or send us an email at webletters at velonews.com. And be sure to like and comment on this podcast and subscribe as well to this and all the other wonderful Velo News podcasts that we have available for you. And I want to thank you all for listening this week and we'll catch you next time.